0: Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, March the 1st, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show. The Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation has unveiled some guidelines for universal design and accessibility standards in multi-unit buildings. Elizabeth Moeller and I will discuss some of the implications. And Kevin Shaw will share some thoughts on the relevance of award shows in the modern media landscape. Before you hear any of that, here comes the regional news update. BC's finance minister has tabled the provincial budget, which included almost $6.4 billion in new funding for health care and an additional $4.2 billion for housing. The budget also includes increases for disability and income assistant rates and creates income-tested tax credits for renters up to $400. Katrina Conroy explains the overall goal of the budget.
1: This year's budget will improve health care, build more homes, help with rising costs, and make our communities safer. Budget 2023 will continue our work to build a stronger, cleaner economy for everyone right across our province.
0: Minister Conroy describes where some of the new health funding is going.
1: This year's budget delivers a new deal for family doctors and supports BC's healthcare workforce. Nearly $1 billion for our health workforce strategy will recruit, train, and retain workers. We're also adding 1,700 healthcare staff and training 3,000 more graduates. New bursaries and grants will make it more affordable than ever to start a career in healthcare.
0: The finance minister also discussed new approaches in addiction services.
1: Our focus will be on expanding supports across the spectrum of care for people struggling with addiction. We'll do this by expanding the number of treatment and recovery beds, by creating new recovery communities to support those who have gone through treatment, and by delivering wraparound services for youth and more indigenous treatment centers.
0: The budget forecasts a total deficit of $11 billion over the next three years. Over to the Prairies, where the Alberta government also tabled the budget yesterday. The province is expecting another surplus in 2023 of $2.4 billion. There will be new spending on health education and infrastructure. The province is also investing $2 billion into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, in other words, an emergency fund. Minister Travis Taves reflected on where Alberta stands economically.
1: This plan achieves the priorities of Albertans, which include ensuring the government lives within its means. Over the last four years, our relentless focus on investment attraction, job creation and diversification has secured our position as the economic engine of Canada.
0: And sliding over to Manitoba, that province is launching a new strategy for homelessness that will see hundreds of new social housing units built. 400 housing units will be added to a rent supplement program and a program will be started to support the development of 300 more. The plan also calls for better cooperation between government departments. Families Minister Rochelle Squires explains the change in approach.
2: This is the first whole-of-government homelessness strategy to enhance our existing systems and enable service providers to move from being primarily crisis oriented to focusing on prevention.
0: Squires reflected further on the underlying causes of homelessness.
2: We recognize that people become homeless when they fall between the cracks, and we understand that those cracks are largely provincial systems. We can and we must do better.
0: The overall investment in the program is $126 million. Over to Ontario, where Ontario's public health units are calling on the government to stop using one-time funding to bridge a gap created four years ago. Premier Ford's government announced in 2019 that it was cutting... The provincial share of public funding it moved from 75 to 20, a 75-25% cost-sharing formula with municipalities to a 70-30% share. Following some backlash, Ford offered mitigation funding to help local governments transition to the new formula. That mitigation funding was considered temporary, but has been continued through to 2023. The Association of Local Public Health Agencies is asking the government to permanently revert to the original funding level in the upcoming budget. They say they need a funding boost of $145 million to help them catch up on services backlogged by the pandemic. And finally, in the Atlantic provinces, Newfoundland and Labrador's health minister says he's looking at what's behind a spike in emergency department deaths last year. 326 people died in the province's emergencies departments in 2022, up from 262 in each of the last two years. A statement from Tom Osborne's office says his department is examining factors that include COVID-19 and the aging population of the province, The department is also looking at how other jurisdictions saw COVID-19 numbers affect their emergency rooms. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, the NHL trade deadline has not slowed down every day. It seems like there's new stuff for us to chew on and push notifications to examine. Let's start with the Edmonton Oilers, Brock. Two moves yesterday, shipping out forward Jesse Pujarvi to the Carolina Hurricanes, but then later in the day, bringing in the big move, defenseman Matthias Ekholm from the Nashville Predators.
3: Yes, uh, both of these trades are good. I think Ekholm is a wonderful defenseman. I this is going to just add so much uh depth uh to their team. Uh it's you know trading away Jesse Puljujarvi that's unfortunate. I've always liked to see Jesse Puljujarvi play, but uh you know it's it's another good move, but I was a bit sad to see Jesse Puljujarvi move away from Edmonton, I've always liked to watch him play, but it just means I have to watch more Carolina Hurricanes hockey.
0: <laughs> so, the one thing that I've noted here is in the Ecom trade, for salary cap reasons, the Oilers had to move Tyson Berry out, one of their defensemen, who's been a pretty core part of that team, especially on their power play during the course of this season. Brock, my, my one concern here is although Ecom is a more defensively reliable defenseman than Berry, the Edmonton identity has been a very high octane, high pace puck moving kind of team. And Ekholm doesn't necessarily fit that the way that Tyson Berry did. So although that maybe uh, if you put 30 hockey men in a room together, they'd say, Oh, they got tougher. They got stronger. They got more defensively reliable. I wonder if it shifts them away from their identity a little bit.
3: Yeah. And you're right. That is their identity. It's, it's, it's quick pace. It's, you know look at who they have up front and and just yeah. <laughs> saying that m- makes it you know that they're gonna to have to be quick paced, but I, I think th- they are looking to be, you know, that tougher, more truculent team. But I don't know if that's <laughs> gonna fit. We'll see. Yes, I threw a little bit of Brian Burke in there. Sorry for those. Of you no, I love there. it. I love it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love an adjective like truculent. Okay. Uh, speaking of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Sprock, I-, I don't know if any of the moves they made yesterday were like super uh, headline grabbing. Maybe trading uh, trading their defenseman Rasmus Sandin for a first round pick was something. Moving out. Peter England was was certainly something that was interesting, but it seems like they just made a ton of moves yesterday as part of a flurry of other moves with the organization Brock, I can't even remember all the players they brought in yesterday, but but your reaction to the flurry of moves now made by the Toronto Maple Leafs in the last two weeks.
3: Well, the the one player that they brought in uh, yesterday was another kick at Luke Shen, um, who's been a Leaf before and and I'm okay with that. Uh, it's funny because the headline yesterday read, you know, uh, Kyle Dubas trades away his first, you know, draft pick in in Rasmus Sandin. Uh, again, I'm fine with it. He hasn't really done as much as they would have hoped. I think this is a team that is, and I, and I'll repeat this again. This is a team that is pushing their chips all the way in. And Dave, I really don't know how far all the way in really is for the Toronto Maple Leafs because I I just I love my team I just don't see them getting past both Tampa and Boston I just don't and so is that enough to win one round for Kyle Dubas to retain his job that remains to be seen but I I see this as a one-round venture possibly with with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and that's it. And so I respect the moving of the chips, you know, believing in your organization. I just it doesn't scream to me as like this is gonna be your championship team just because of the depth of the Eastern Conference.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I'm struggling with, Brock, in terms of keeping track of all these Toronto Maple Leafs moves, is at least in the first trade they made for Ryan O'Reilly, the idea was not to take any roster players off the team, use a lot of draft capital to try try and change the roster. But in the last three or four moves they've made, they've certainly changed the constitution of the team. Maybe not so much at the top of the roster, but at the bottom of the roster. And and it it just strikes me, Brock, to a certain degree... Now, I know I, know, I, know I sound like I'm being overly critical. I'm overly critical of the Edmonton trades. I'm overly critical of the Toronto trades. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder for a team that has a top-five record in the league how much you really want to mess with chemistry and resilience and a core. I, I understand maybe making one or two trades, but Brock, I think we're up to five or six trades in the last two weeks where now you're starting to change the constitution of your team where the team had been having generalized success during the regular season. And I'm not all the way convinced that any of these moves make them a better playoff team
3: yeah but with, and, with, and,
0: with maybe the exception of the o, the o'reilly trade
3: yeah and the the problem is and i and i'm going to piggyback to what you just said the problem is is that i almost feel like management is feeling the pressure of like oh well we haven't got out of the first round since you know 2006. so let's just do this and move this and move that and do this and do that and then look and see what happens the the, the challenge you're going to have is people are going to say yeah but we've had this core for You know four or five years and what have they done for us lately nothing besides for a great regular season and poor mike ross has to sit up there and you know the the top and announce goals in the regular season and it's all good and then one round of the playoffs and it's done so i i just think we're feeling this whole they have to do something and i I agree with you i'm not sure that the something they're doing is going to accomplish what they want given what i just said that i only think they're getting past one of those two teams Possibly, And I yeah. emphasize possibly, because Tampa's been around. They, they've done it. They know what's going on, too.
0: So, Brock, uh, we mentioned both the Edmonton Oilers and the Toronto Maple Leafs both making some additions, changing the faces of the rosters, getting some new jerseys printed. Uh, they're playing tonight, which is actually a pretty darn exciting game. It's always exciting when the Leafs and the Oilers get going. Th- those are the two best
3: teams in Canada right now. Yeah, it is. And we'll see what happens, you know. that Most of their team should be... Should be there, you know, with with an exception of the ones maybe they made yesterday. Uh, maybe Luke Shen's not quite in the lineup. But, again, we'll see. This is two high-powered uh, teams, and, and they seem to be getting things going. I expect this to be a really high-scoring game, and uh, it, it'll be fun to watch. But I expect it to come down to the third period because both teams can score almost at will, which is fun to watch. Yeah, that'll be the national broadcast tonight on
0: Sportsnet. So that's good too. That's one that's going to beam into every house in Canada. If you're watching the show on cable right now and you have Sportsnet, even just the basic one, you should get this game tonight between the Oilers and the Leafs. So that's a good one. Brock, one more NHL note. To, uh, to get here. And I suppose maybe this is even the biggest story from the NHL trade deadline. Chicago Blackhawks finally trade Patrick Kane to the New York Rangers last night. That saga comes to an end. So, Brock, we're once again finding ourselves where we were yesterday with me saying, goodness gracious, the East is loading up. And now the Rangers have added Vladimir Tarasenko and Patrick Kane inside of a couple of weeks here to really bolster their top six.
3: Listen, the the New York Rangers are going to be right up there in in the Eastern Conference when when you can have, you know, Kane and Tarasenko as part of your team and add those pieces. That's incredible. I I am really happy to say that um, you know, the Patrick Kane saga is over. It's is is done. There always seems to be that one player every year that you know we we get on the top of the you know, TSN trade bait board or Sportsnet trade bait board and it's like, oh, could we move this one? And, and and this is the one. And again, I have to publicly apologize to all the people out there who follow me on Facebook because I am using Facebook as a clipboard for all of these <laughs> trades that have gone as my notepad because that's about as quick as I can get it in and make my notes for, you know, these hits that I do. But it's it's been incredible to watch. And I and I mentioned to you by email this has been the one of the best trade deadline periods. Let's put it that way that I've seen in in my lifetime. I mean, just the moving pieces, it's incredible. But it's going to make for an interesting, you know, Friday as to what happens. I'm okay with it because I'm doing Kelly and Rummy on Friday, so <laughs> the, the less trades that happen, I'm good with it. But we'll see how things go. But all in all, very happy to see Patrick Kane finally get moved to a team that he's going to make a difference yeah. on almost right away
0: whatever concerns existed about his health going into the last couple of weeks pretty much got alleviated with the way he's been playing hockey he should slide right in there to new york and they're going to be a very dynamic team to watch very exciting with excellent goaltending on the back end as well hey brock we are fresh out of time my friend i know you've got a great conversation lined up about player influence and team decisions you and i will tackle that tomorrow And you know what we're also going to do tomorrow? We're going to do a little Toronto Raptors talk because they deserve our love as well. (laughs) Yes, they do. That's Brock Richardson. He is the host of The Neutral Zone. Alex Smythe is at the AMI Weather Desk.
4: Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there is a mix of sun and clouds. The high is minus 7, but the wind chill makes it feel like minus 27. In Charlottetown, PEI, there's a mix of sun and clouds today with a chance of snow in the morning. The high is minus two, but feeling like minus 13. In St. John, New Brunswick, there's snow off and on today with up to four centimeters expected to fall. The high is minus one, but feeling like minus 11. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's a mix of sun and clouds today. The high is two degrees, but with that wind chill makes it feel like minus 11. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it is cloudy with a chance of snow or rain this afternoon. The high is 3 degrees but feeling like minus 7 with that wind chill. Over to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow today. The high is 1 but feeling like minus 13. In Brandon, Manitoba, it is a mix of sun and clouds today, the high is minus 12 but it's Bitterly cold with that wind chill and makes it feel like minus 30. To Regina, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy today. The high is minus 10, but again, bitterly cold. A bit warmer though, it's at feeling like minus 25 with that wind chill. To Lethbridge, Alberta, where it's cloudy with a chance of snow this morning, and then it'll become a mix of sun and clouds in the afternoon. The, uh, there is a uh, wind gust up to 50 kilometers per hour today highest three degrees, but feeling like minus 15 with that wind chill. The Red Deer, Alberta. It is cloudy with a chance of snow this morning, but then clearing up in the afternoon. The highest minus seven with a wind chill of minus 21. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, there's snow and drifting snow today. There's up to 10 centimeters expected and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. So it's a very blistery, windy day with lots of snow. The high is minus eight, Wind chill minus 26, and there is a snowfall warning in effect for the area. In Kelowna, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow late this afternoon. The high is four degrees. Finally, in Vancouver, BC, it is cloudy with a chance of showers in the afternoon, and three degrees is the high there. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, Kevin Shaw will share his thoughts on the relevance of award shows in the modern media landscape. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. The Canadian Screen Awards will air April 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on CBC and CBC Gem. Samantha B. will host the pre-taped broadcast. The relevance of award shows can vary in the modern media landscape. Kevin Shaw has some thoughts on this. Hey, good morning, Kevin. How's it going? Morning, Dave. Who's Samantha B.? Samantha B. is a American, com- well, a Canadian comedian who uh, used to be on The Daily Show.
5: I'm being I'm being a little facetious here. Oh. With, uh, <laughs> we're talking about cultural relevance. Okay. I don't know if anybody knows who Samantha b is.
0: <laughs> hey, fair. You know that's a good point. Fair enough. I like that. So beyond the host, let's start with this pre-taped format that's going to distill the award ceremony down to one hour. What do you think of that format?
5: Is there any way this can be a highlight reel? Um, <laughs> you know, I think that the you've you've got we've got to look at input versus output, right? So. How much does it cost to produce an award show? Let's say we're doing a, a three-hour award show, um, versus what that's going to generate in terms of revenue. I think they probably realize that um, that the input doesn't equal the output for the Canadian <laughs> Screen Awards, and um, you know this, this this truncated format or this this abridged format. Um, is probably the best bang for their buck. And, you know, I just, I wish it could be shorter. Yeah, Can we get this down to 15 minutes?
0: Can we get down yeah. to 20 minutes? Uh, sure. Ke- Kevin, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that so many of these award shows end up being so long. How often will somebody be watching the Oscars, for example, and they hand out the final award for best picture at, like, midnight or 12.15 yeah. on a Sunday? Yeah, yeah. Listen, yeah. Even, even the Super Bowl has enough sense to be like, no, no, this thing is done and dusted by Ten fifteen, but <laughs> right. but at least in the Super Bowl, there's like it, there, there's a game attached to it. In the case of, of an, award, an award ceremony, you're just waiting for information, right? So how how long can you actually ask somebody to wait and sit there for something that can easily be read in a blog post the next morning in one second?
5: Sure, and and we're at the point now where you know, like it or not, um, for good or ill, I think TV, film, music, uh, they're really part of what shaped popular culture and what what shaped what shaped culture in our society and these award shows are highlighting the you know the the, the creators of that culture um, and I think that we've lost a lot of that relevance over you know the past you know I'd even say 10 years um, with with award shows getting um, you know, going sort of the political route and, and taking a lot of um, you know taking a lot of liberties with with the people that are on there and, and declining audiences and, and so forth. Yeah,
0: I, I think about that relevance as well. That it seems like we're still in a really great era of content. The actual content for us to consume, certainly in like the TV and movie world, is, is oftentimes quite good. Music, I suppose, that could be up for debate <laughs> a little bit yes. uh, if you're a real music if you're a real music snob. But but what I'd argue, especially with this with the award shows in regards to their relevance, is that the advent of social media means that a lot of these celebrities are way more prevalent and present in our lives that 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 used to be kind of cool to catch a glimpse of a celebrity during the half hour on entertainment tonight or then for a special like the grammys or the emmys or the oscars but now with people just being everywhere i don't know it feels like we're just over overly saturated with celebrity culture
5: i i think so um you know I'd, i'd agree with you there i think we're we're Almost at the point where where the paradigm is going to change, where um, you're not a you're not a rock star anymore. You're a musician. You're not a film star anymore. You're an actor. You're not a TV star anymore. You're an actress. Um, And it's just another job. Um, Pop quiz for you, Dave. Uh, you, You remember Will Smith's
0: slap? I do. I do. In fact, what? in fact, Chris Rock is having his uh having his uh stand-up comedy special on Netflix this weekend where he's expected to talk about it.
5: Right. What what award show was that at? That was the Oscars. And and who won Best Picture that year? Ooh, who won
0: Best Picture last year at the Oscars?
5: Uh already out of see, my brain. Is, right. And see this is this is what I'm saying about about cultural irrelevance is that you know, we're living in a society now where these academies of um, whether it's the Motion Picture Academy or TV Academy or the Grammys, um, they don't they don't represent the people. Um, and and we could count on them to be curators before, where you know we could trust the academy to to put you know a Shawshank Redemption up there as best picture, um, and it was a sleeper hit in the summer, and all of a sudden it became really popular because. Hey, the academy knew what they were talking about. Um, now we're we're at the point where you know we're looking at things like like maybe Squid Game or maybe you know dare I say it, uh, although I don't want to, is a, is a superhero movie as being you know quote unquote best picture. Um, <laughs> but but you know I, I think that we're 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 at the point where these academies are, are kind of losing their their touch with with what people want and and what actually makes good art and good culture.
0: Kevin, I'm super, super embarrassed because I should have remembered what Best Picture was because we reacted (laughs) to it quite a bit the next day. Because of its (laughs) disability representation, it was CODA. About the experience oh, of, yes. a, of a daughter of deaf parents. So, right, uh, right. so that that was one. That was one that I probably should have remembered. But you know, there's a lot of stuff flying around my brain right here. Yeah, sure. yeah. Kevin, I agree with you as well. That like we've sort of we've sort of distinguished a difference between pop culture and art, and it's really difficult for a lot of these organizations to to walk that line of what's the difference between. Uh, like, like for example, Imagine Dragons used to win a lot, win a lot of Grammys, and I would tell you, like, that's not particularly musically complex or interesting music, <laughs> right? But right. like, like is that the best rock music that was being made? No, but it was super popular.
5: Right, and and this just goes to the point that I said again about about these academies, um, you know, they're. they're There is a lot of money behind this stuff. There's a lot of money that gets shuffled around behind the scenes. I'm sure this is my opinion Um, that 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 goes to promote things like you you remember when the Grammy, the Grammy Award or any award was sort of like the peak of your career. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, you you worked, you worked away at your craft. All of a sudden you got a Grammy or you got a, you know, an Emmy Award. And that was at the, the height of your career. Now it's like the beginning of your career. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, oh, this person came out of nowhere and they won a Grammy. Who are they? I'm going to go and check them out. And they, you know, they have a, an upward trajectory from there, and then um, they sort of peter off, and and then we don't hear from them again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we're 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 coming into that we're coming into that paradigm. I'm gonna come back to this
0: idea of saturation as well, because it's not just that there's so many different award shows. For example, I'm about to make reference to the Screen Actors Guild Mm -hmm. awards that were handed out last weekend. But even if you watch a broadcast of the Grammys or you watch a broadcast of the Oscars, there's like, nearly a hundred different awards that get handed out right so yeah. at, to a certain degree what is sp- if everybody wins a Grammy or if everybody wins an Oscar then nobody wins an Oscar nobody wins a Grammy like like the difference between best record or best song or best album versus best like mm-hmm. like there's just there's there's too many categories just tell yeah. me what's the best as a matter of curation
5: you you're absolutely right i think we're we're getting to the point where the people who are really interested in these award shows are people in the industry and you know if it's going to be that we made as we might as well be watching the uh you know the national you know lighting equipment manufacturing <laughs> ceremony or the you know the, the the construction materials awards or something you know something like that um i i, I agree i i think we need to to maybe pair it back a little bit and not have so many categories and, and start looking at this from a, you know, a, a holistic perspective. And, and in addition to saturation, I'm going to add to that and say fragmentation, mm. um, you know, do you know what the, what's in the top 10 of the top 40 right now? No, no clue. Right. So You know, but I'm sure you've got songs and music that you listen to where where, um, you know, in your own bubble, you've got artists and so forth that you follow. Like we're there. We're at that point of fragmentation now. And uh, I think these award shows are are just proof positive, um, you know, in terms of declining, declining viewership numbers and declining declining ad revenues that uh, that the age of the award show is over. Yeah, with all due respect
0: to people like uh, Rick Dees in the Weekly Top 40 and Casey Kasem and Ryan Seacrest, you're yeah. right, I'm just not tuning into that broadcast on Sunday morning sure. anymore on the radio. It's not happening. Yeah. I, I want to ask you a quick question about, coming back to format here, because the Screen Actors Guild Awards, the SAG Awards, did take place last weekend, and Netflix showed it on their YouTube page. Next year, they're going to be showing the broadcast on the Netflix platform itself. How do you think medium might change the perception of an award show?
5: Well, I mean, if if it's gonna be something, you know, I think YouTube had its own award show that- um, (laughs) They did. (laughs) Right? Like, you know, if you're pulling an audience of, let's say a million people in a market of, of, you know, let's take the US and Canada. So let's call it 400 million to make the math easy you're pulling a million people into your, your online awards show. I mean, that's that's not great. No. Um, you know, that's not great for advertisers. That's not great for, for the craft. Um, and, you know, ultimately I think the, you know, the, the real magic is broadcast television. I mean, let's face it, um, you know, you and I are doing broadcast television right now. It's something that people can pull up on their TV. There's nothing to log into um you know there's no password to 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 tune into now with dave brown thank goodness Heck yeah um you know and so i, I think medium has a, a big big part to play in in the decline of of the relevance of these these award shows
0: yeah i i i'm i'm with you through and through on this one kevin i do want to mention one thing about the sag awards though. two hour broadcast no commercials uncensored Okay, now we're talking a little bit more uh, Dave Brown's broadcast <laughs> language. Okay, Kevin, let, let's, let's end this on one positive note here, because I think you and I have done a pretty good job of shredding these award shows. Uh, do you still think there's some benefit to the viewer or consumer? Because I'd still argue that curation matters. In, 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 a, in a culture that is becoming very fractured, where it's more difficult to find the content that you want or, or discover new content, I still think there's a little bit of a value in curation.
5: I agree. I, I think that what we're missing, you know, we can talk about this in music, we can talk about this in TV or film. I mean, there's so much of it being produced now. Who tells us what's great, right? We can go out and look for stuff and we can find things that are sort of related and we've got algorithms and so forth that'll choose things for us. But we're really interested in what our friends are watching. We're really interested in, in what our family's watching um because they know us they know our tastes they know what we like and it's something that we can talk about at the you know at the water cooler the next day or at uh, you know over dinner um the the curation piece i think is really important and i think if if these award shows you know got out of the politics and got out of all of the you know, all of the extra stuff that they did and just focused on the craft and the art, I think uh, we would be in a really great place for curation.
0: I think that's well said, but this segment was award-winning, if I have to say myself. (laughs) You're award-winning, Dave Brown. (laughs) You're You're an award winner too, Kevin Shaw. Kevin, thank you for this. Thank you. That's Kevin Shaw. Coming up after the break, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has introduced guidelines to incorporate universal design into multi-unit residential homes. Elizabeth Moeller and I will reflect on a couple of those guidelines. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation has introduced guidelines to incorporate universal design into multi unit residential homes. The guide aims to put universal design concepts into practical terms for builders and developers. Housing is a topic that I'm always eager to talk about, and it's something Elizabeth Moeller is eager to talk about as well. So let's jump right in. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth.
2: Good morning, Dave. How are you this morning? I'm
0: well. So, Elizabeth, considering that these guidelines are meant to offer advice about spaces like condos, apartments, row houses, townhouses, it's worth asking, why is it so important to consider these kinds of spaces?
2: Yeah, I mean, we know that our population is going to become age into disability in the future. We know already 22% of people with disabilities live in Canada. So, just from a kind of pure population standpoint it's the smart thing to do but also in terms of these kinds of spaces these are the kind of spaces that are able to be built with accessibility in mind. If you think about a house, especially like an old Victorian home like the one I grew up in, it's pretty hard to make that accessible, mm-hmm. especially if it's already, it's already been built, right? So what we're looking at here is new or restored um, multi-unit residential buildings and thinking about how to make those not only usable to the greatest number of pe- people possible, because we know we have a housing crisis, 45% of homeless people live with a I didn't know that stat, but that's really frightening. Mm. But also, I think when you look at why this is important, why this is needed, it also keeps people out of long-term care and hospitals if they have a safe and accessible place to live.
0: Yeah, I, I would argue that it's something as simple as saying that especially in major cities, density is the future. Yeah, if we're, going, to talk going, about, up. we're yeah, going up. We're going up. We're talking we're about going gro- up. Yeah, we're going up. And if we're talking about growing populations, and as those populations grow, needing more spaces for people to live independently that are more barrier-free, this all just makes sense to me. So if we're going to densify, let's do it properly. And I don't think we've necessarily densified properly if you think about all the micro condos that have gone up inside exactly. places like Vancouver. And the
2: time- Tiny, tiny condos. I just had a friend that bought a condo and it was literally one room plus a little kitchenette. And what I love about these guidelines is they actually look at multi-generational living. And again, like let's face it, if we're trying to keep people out of hospital and long-term care, multi-generational living is the future. So in these guidelines, you can actually see that there's a bathroom that would be accessible to somebody who's older, to somebody with a baby, somebody who perhaps needs a wheelchair or a walker. So really what we're looking at here is smart living, ways to live in a way that's efficient and effective and incorporates multi-generational families into the unit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But but it does require some semblance of square footage. It's not just the way in which you smartly design within square footage, to a certain degree, you actually have to be mindful of that. So uh, it makes me think a little bit, Elizabeth, especially in things of like wider hallways, turning radius in bathrooms, for someone who uses a mobility device, it, it, it feels to me like there has to be some way to incentivize developers Mm -hmm. uh, or designers to incorporate this because I I, I think the, the ethical case is easily understood. The moral case is easy under, easily understood. Even the future proofing is easily understood. But I think that at the end of the day, a lot of these developers are still just thinking about how much can we square uh, cram into limited square footage? How do you think people could go about incentivizing this to builders and developers, beyond maybe just putting it in the building code?
2: Oh, for sure. So I think there's a couple of things. So in Toronto, there's the Open Doors and Housing Now projects. So those actually provide incentives for developers. But, you know, even things like in curriculum, when designers, engineers, and architects are being taught, building that conversation in. So people are thinking about it before they even start developing. So in, in architect curriculums, talking about what is UDL and having people with lived experience come to talk about UDL and why it's important. And then beyond that, having professional Programs uh, and professional organizations provide incentives. So, like in Boston, for example, they have the best of Accessible Boston. So, those are incentives provided by you know architect agencies that offer organizations that are doing the building actual incentives to do that work. And I think that there's a couple of things here for me that really stand out. You know, if, if we're not thinking about it, we're not going to do it. And then it's reactive when we need to go back and retrofit a building. So I think a really big piece, you know, even beyond incentives is really building that into the curriculum of engineers, architects, and designers.
0: Which is something that regular contributor on the show Thea Curdy, the president of Designable yes. Environments, is is working actively on getting that yes. into curriculums, working with the future the, the future people in the academic space to make sure the designers know these things. But Elizabeth, these guidelines, it, it would be impossible for us to summarize them all in this segment. The, the, the guide was almost hundred pages long. As yes, I was it was very long, a lot of dense reading, but, but like, speaking but, of
2: density, yeah, but but it
0: was but it was excellent, right? Like, it was really really good, including a couple of case studies in there, and there were some elements of that case study that you found really interesting. So what was it about that case study that jumped off the page for you?
2: Yeah, the Daniels case study, I mean, there's a couple things that I really, for me, were really interesting. The one thing that I, I thought about was I didn't see a whole lot around vision. So, for example, they talk about elevators and they talk about the time that the door stays open and the time that, um, you know, the the space inside the elevator, but there was nothing about large printer Braille buttons in the elevator. Yeah. In the laundry rooms, they didn't talk about does the machine have Braille or large print or will it talk? So a lot of laundry machines are not accessible. They're touchscreen. And then we, we pivot to the kitchen for a moment, if you will, and the day, Daniel's kitchen was great, but the flat top stoves are a real challenge for folks with sight loss. So when I was thinking about this, I thought that this is is great for people with specific types of mobility disabilities and perhaps dexterity, but I did notice the vision piece was missing. One thing I liked about the Daniel's Case study was the green space outside. As as a person with a disability, it's really hard to access accessible green space. So what I liked was this idea of open green spaces outside with lots of benches, wide paths. I love the accessible playground. I know the Rick Hansen Foundation has awarded a couple of Uh, agencies who have done accessible playgrounds. That was beautiful. You know, people being able to play in in different kinds of spaces in different ways. And the other really nice thing about that was this idea of um, really well-lit and open entrances that are easy to find. Sometimes I find myself, I'll be walking around a building and I won't know how to get in. So there's a lot of really great things in the Daniels space. And I think, you know, they've obviously, they won an award in 2017. So they're doing a lot of things really well. And I love that they're in this market. I just think the piece around the visual disability could be bolstered a little bit.
0: Elizabeth, you and I must have been sharing a brain on this one because there was a lot of attention paid very early in the guide to outdoor spaces, to green spaces, to pathways. And that's where when I talk about doing density properly, that's Mm -hmm. really what I'm driving home. Because so oftentimes in the city where we live, Toronto, you just see condos popping up everywhere and losing any semblance of public green space. And there are some cities that are now demanding if you are developing a condo, you must include green space that's available to the whole public in the plan. Yeah. I this is one of the things when we're talking about universal design that so oftentimes you can really get into that granular detail of, oh, counter heights should be this high, or you should be able to roll a wheelchair or mobility device underneath a counter. But people forget that universal design is not simply about some accessibility code or not simply. About an, a, where a stove goes or where a washing machine goes, but the actual ability to experience the world around you, where you live, and and I was so delighted to see that actually early in these guidelines mm-hmm. as sort of which almost implies an area of priority.
2: I mean, here's an example: the prayer rooms, right? So when we look at the guide, they had um, public and private prayer rooms. They had. Um, a whole bunch of information in the guide around shared eating spaces for cultural events so they're really you know here and actually one of the really cool things in the guide that excites me is that it's aesthetically pleasing I think so often Dave when we think about accessibility and universal design people think oh it's going to look ugly it's going to look like a medical facility but they took great care in this guide to talk about aesthetics so I'll just give a very brief example of the bathroom they talk about a wet bathroom well we know in Europe there's tons of those so this is like a spa-like environment Environment in the bathroom that is also usable and accessible. They talk about, you know, even in the the kitchen having different kinds of lighting. Well, you don't have to have a disability to appreciate that sometimes you're going to want lower lighting, depending <laughs> yes. on what you're doing, right? So what I love about this is the aesthetics. They really are focusing on making it visually pleasing. So people of all abilities are going to want to live there.
0: Elizabeth, uh, I I we have to wrap up the conversation here, but I don't want this conversation to stop. You and I should pick up a pick up again on this I in the future. I think we should. I think we should. Well, Elizabeth, thank you for this. We'll talk to you again in a couple weeks.
2: Thank you, Dave. We'll speak to you in a couple of weeks.
0: That is Elizabeth Moeller talking a little bit about some of the new guidelines introduced by the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation around universal design. Again, we only scratched a little bit at the onion there. So we'll dive into that again in the future. You can count on it. Coming up after the break, Ramya Amuthan will have a preview of today's Kelly and Ramya. And Alex Smythe has a question about a new musical museum, or at least an exhibit opening up in Calgary You may want your dime back, or potentially a nickel back. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. back it's now with Dave Brown on AMI a lot of business to get to in this last segment of the show and not a lot of time to do it starting with what's coming up today on Kelly and at 2 p.m eastern time on AMI Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and joins us now hey good morning Ramya morning Dave so Ramya what's the best thing on the show today
6: I'm so excited. We're going to talk about an audio described performance that TO Live is offering uh, on Saturday, March 11th. It's called Broken Cord. You may have heard about it, but we're going to get into it with Nathan Sartori, uh, artistic director over there at TO Live. And it's basically a work that questions the relationship between the colonized and the colonizer, um, specifically talking African uh, history.
0: Wow, good culture conversation on Kelly and mm-hmm. Rumia, and that's only just a little taste. There's eight, there's seven more segments for folks to tune into this afternoon at two p.m. Eastern time. Let's bring in Alex Smythe and abdel Abdelmajid for a quick roundtable here. Alex, there is a museum, a musical exhibit opening up in Calgary that might uh, ruffle a feather or two.
4: Uh, yeah, so uh the band Nickelback, you know, both famous and infamous uh, depending on how you feel about the band. Uh, the uh National Music Center in Calgary is uh opening up a a temporary exhibit for the next year or so that kind of highlights the band's past and legacy. So I kind of wanted to find out from everybody. I mean, Nickelback is quite notorious in in Canada and beyond would you go and check out the exhibit if you were in Calgary? Uh, so
0: Nazarene, why don't we start with you?
2: I was a big Nickelback fan back in the day. Uh, so I would go, I would check it out.
0: I uh, I'll pass. I will be in Calgary later this month and I am not going to go, although I will say To offer up my bona fides on this conversation, I saw Nickelback open for Everclear at Metropolis in the fall of 2000 in Montreal. So I saw Nickelback even before they were popular. So there, take that. Romeo, what about you?
6: Wait, did you like them at that point? They were awesome. That show was incredible. It was like one of the best rock shows that I've
0: ever been to. They were actually even better than Everclear that night. There you go.
6: Oh, snap. Yeah, I never understood exactly or maybe I never looked into the hate around Nickelback because they were hated for mm-hmm. a long time and like really deeply. But I actually enjoyed their music, Uh, <laughs> whatever was on the radio. I don't think I would check out the exhibit, though. To me, like I don't usually go out and do these kind of things—the the deep dive into um, Canadian artists, or you know, even Justin Bieber—he has one in Stratford, right, like the museum, or so.
0: Oh, you know, just, you know, Nazreen would go to that one.
6: Uh, yeah, <laughs> I feel like Nazreen might go to all of them, but I don't know.
0: <laughs> I would yeah it's like it's a bit weird right like when you're talking about a musician to a certain degree if they're still alive and around i would rather go to their show than an yeah. exhibit about them right i'd rather go to a concert it's, it's it's a little bit different alex you asked the question but what would you do would you go to these this nickelback exhibit in calgary i i probably
4: wouldn't and it's nothing to do with nickelback itself you know i i have to admit like they've always been a guilty pleasure band of mine i i love the music <laughs> but i i think in order for me to want to go and check it out a a whole museum exhibit a whole like um uh installation for a band there has to be something really unique or interesting or fascinating within that band's story that would make me want to check it out i i just don't sense there's anything unique any kind of major groundbreaking aspects or elements that really would stand out in a Nickelback uh, exhibit it's just like oh they they produce music for over 20 plus years you know they have a bunch of studio albums they were popular and infamous. That's that's basically the gist of Nickelback in, yeah. in my
0: mind. And even when you, when you really get down to it, Silver Side Up was really their only big-time record. They had some other hits, but Silver Side Up was their only real monster mm-hmm. record. So, you know, you're not talking about the, the the greatest longevity in terms of this band, other than saying, yeah, we released some albums, but nobody listened. All right, guys. I, I
4: would push back. I would push back. Uh, Silver Side Up is not the only, only great album. But uh, carry oh, on. Oh, I'm not talking really
0: about that. great. I'm talking about popularity. Yeah, but I, I would say their their
4: uh, second and third album, The Long Road, and I can't remember what the third album was called with like Rockstar and stuff, that was when they got super, super popular.
0: Oh, okay. I'll, I think the third album is called The State maybe yeah anyway uh all right moving on uh we've got literally a minute and 30 seconds on the clock so you got to be quick on this one guys if i got to build myself a museum for a canadian artist i would give it to toronto's own our lady Peace. i've seen them the most in my adult life and they continued to rock and they were a huge part of that canadian 90s rock revolution Nazarene, you get to build a museum for any canadian musician who's it going to be
2: I wouldn't say building a musician, but they are underrated, Mariana's Trench.
0: Okay, going for some rock and roll. All right, yeah. I like it. Try a little more, try a little more. I can't finish that lyric because it has a cuss word. Uh, Ramya, <laughs> what? who are you building a mu- uh, museum exhibit for?
6: Yo, I didn't have one before this question, before Nisreen said hers, but I'm going to go off her back and say Marianna's Trench because I actually do really love their music.
0: Okay, we're going to have Nisreen and Rumi are going to open a museum. (laughs) We just found a great AMI TV show. Alex, last word to you. Who are you building a museum for who's underappreciated?
4: One of the most underrated bands in the world, Rush. They have a long-lasting legacy. Their influences felt everywhere. The music is unique and it spans decades. Rush it is. Where are we uh, putting that museum? Oh, we got to put it right in Toronto, the hub of, of Russ. Come on, we can, we can carve out a wing of like the Royal Ontario museum or, <laughs> or something like that, right? Okay. the new, like the, the, the bend, that uh, diamond that sticks out, that, that, that fits with the vibe of Russ. Okay, fair
0: enough, I'll grant you that one. Alex, thank you for this. Thank you. Nazreen, have a great day. You too. Ramya, you enjoy your day as well. Thanks, Dave. That's all the time we have for the show today. Don't you worry, we're back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on AMI-TV or on demand on your favourite podcast platform whenever you want to listen. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day, at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.
5: The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine.
1: Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.